So we're going to look at the little book of Ruth. If you know it, you will know that Ruth is a wonderful little book, one of, that is full of warmth and of love and of hope. It's a demonstration in so many ways of what life lived in God's way is like and the good it does. It's also very appropriate for harvest. You'll see from the end of this chapter that it begins uh, the real action of the book at the barley harvest. This is a book about God's provision for his people. Now, uh, we're going to start at the beginning of the book, page 304, if you have it in the Bibles there, uh, and it will come up on the screen in the moment. Uh, Ruth, chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Mahlon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left with, without her two sons and her husband. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Uh, am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait till they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them, and the woman exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter 
I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. You'll have seen from the beginning of the chapter that this story is set in the days when the judges ruled. We were there not so long ago when we looked at the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, It was a very dark time. Uh, If we had time to go over the end of the book of Judges, it was a time, it says, when everyone did what was right in his own eyes, which meant, of course, that the strong ruled and the weak suffered. It was a time... uh, of incredible cruelty at times. People not only abandoned God, but that led in turn to some of the most monstrous and difficult chapters in the whole Bible of evil, evil acts from God's people themselves. And the Bible records that unflinchingly to show us the reality of what humans can do to one another. And in particular, the the last few chapters of Judges, 21 to 23, focus on some events all connected to one town, Bethlehem, and all of which are examples of not just violence and cruelty, but of terrible and cruel misogyny as well. And so we open this little book, and it starts with two widows grieving, bitter, on a dusty road back to Bethlehem. It doesn't sound like a good start. And yet this book, though we only see the beginnings of the glimmers of light in this chapter, this book is one of great hope. Not only for Naomi and Ruth, though it is, but also, and that's clear if you flick to the end of the book of Ruth, for his whole people. Because this book is a story about how God turned round those dark times, the times of the judges. The end of the book talks about the little child that Ruth had, and how he was the ancestor of the great King David, who would begin to put things right again in their country, bring them back not just to God, but through that also to one another, and to bring peace and hope again. And of course, as we read it, we think these are events in Bethlehem about the king who comes from Bethlehem, David, but also about the origins of the great king who came from Bethlehem, Jesus himself. We're going to look at this through the eyes of three people in turn, Elimelech, then Naomi, and then Ruth. We see in them compromise, we see bitterness. Finally, though, we see real deep love. So firstly, we look at the life of Elimelech. So there was this man from Bethlehem in Judah, Elimelech. His name, incidentally, means the Lord is my king. God is my king. Um, and yet he seems to be someone whose life was marked with comp- by compromise. There was a famine, which is ironic, perhaps, the word Bethlehem, the means house of bread, but there is no bread in the house of bread, and they are hungry. So he takes his family to stay for a while in another country. They became economic refugees, and that is very much understandable. They needed food, and on paper, that must have seemed like a very sensible move. 
No one else seems to have gone with them, but they wanted to feed the family. Elimelech wanted to get bread for his kids and his wife and himself. Except that in context, in this place and in this time, the move they make means so much more than that. You'll remember, if you've read much of the Old Testament, that through Moses, God had promised his people he would provide for them in their own special land, and as long as they stayed true to him and kept to his ways, they would have plenty. Um, Not the way he works now, but a picture of how goodness comes, uh, what we need ultimately comes when we live according to his ways, and particularly in trust and faith in him. As long as the people stayed true to God, they would have plenty. Elimelech doesn't seem to ask, why has this famine come? Should we turn back to God? Instead, he goes to Moab. And Moab is a strange choice. Uh, You'll see it there. It's on the other side of the Dead Sea from Judah. It's uh, part of what's now the Kingdom of Jordan. Um, The Moabites had been enemies of the Israelites from the days they arrived in the land. Uh, You can see back in Judges 2 how their king, Eglon, had ruled and oppressed and uh, plundered them for 18 long years. But even more than that military pressure, it was a nation that had tried, and you see this in the book of Numbers, to break Israel's power by breaking their reliance and trust on God, by trying to encourage them to abandon God's ways and to take on the ways of the peoples round about. And the ways of the people of Moab were very dark. You know, we it's... Um, One doesn't want to judge other cultures, but every time and every culture has evil things about it. And some of the things about the people of Moab at that time were deeply horrifying. They practiced child sacrifice, for instance, in worship of their gods. And God had warned the Israelites, you know, stay close to me, and I want you to stay close to me. So live according to the good laws I give you, and don't live among the peoples of these lands, especially the Moabites. Don't marry them, especially the Moabites, because then your kids are going to end up growing up worshipping gods like Chemosh and burning their children alive. Don't marry them. Don't start to worship their gods. Be really careful of this. And here's Elimelech and his little family heading off all on their own to settle in Moab. It's just for a while, they think. But as so often a little while does, it turns into years and years. Elimelech has chosen to do things his way and not God's way. And as so often when we do that, things go horribly wrong. Firstly, he dies. And the story really switches here. It's no longer his story, it's Naomi's story. She's left to deal with this awful grief, the ripping up of her life in a foreign land, far from family, far from friends, all the agony and the pain and the loss of that and her hopes dashed and her comfort gone. And she is there, and her two sons, they marry these Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And they live there then ten years more. And left unsaid in those ten years is that grandchildren never turned up. The hopes were slowly worn away until the days when Mahlon and Kilion die. Now, the, the Hebrew here is, is subtle but emotionally charged. You need to, the, the, those last words, two sons there, uses the words for my boys, kids. In other words, her little boys died. She was left without them. 
She has to bury them in a foreign land far from everyone she knows, far from everyone she loves. You know, the greatest grief a parent can ever know. She's known it twice on top of being widowed. She's left with nothing. And of course, in those days, she's left without her pension too. Because in those days, to do the backbreaking work of farming and protecting your land from greedy neighbours wasn't really feasible as a single woman. It's hard to imagine. My great-grandmother, uh, when her husband died uh, in the First World War, um, never came home, uh, her brother took over her field, muscled her out of it, and farmed it. And she never saw... Uh, single bit of produce from it. Um, it's that kind of world, a little, little closer than we perhaps imagine, but a dark and difficult world for someone like Naomi. Elimelech's choices have led to real disaster. Now they don't always, of course, when we disobey God, not by any means, and he is not a vindictive God, but he gives us good laws to show us the way that, for life that's best and most satisfying and most good. And you know, if I remember back to times in my own life when I thought, oh, maybe I don't need to take very seriously this particular command of God. Maybe, maybe it's alright. Maybe it's not as serious as all of that. It's always led in the end to grief and tears. Secondly, we come to Naomi herself in her pain and in her bitterness. She hears that God has provided for his people once again, and she realizes she needs to come home. She realizes she needs to return. And that word return, it's um, often translated repent. It's the same word, and it's used again and again through this chapter. She needs to come back to her land, but not just to her land and her people. She needs to come back to her God, to return to the protection of that God. To say, in other words, I'm done with compromise, of trying to live the world's way at the same time as following God, to putting uh, material things first instead of God. So I'm good to come home. And she prepares to set out, presumably with what she can carry. If she's got anything left, she can carry. And her two daughters-in-law set out with her. And they, they leave their place in Moab. And they set out on the long, dusty road home. Now, we begin to see a little of what she's like here. Naomi shows real kindness at this point. She knows exactly how bitter and difficult it is to be a widow in a foreign land, friendless and hopeless and helpless. And she turns to her two daughters-in-law and she says, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and me. She, she's full of gratefulness, interestingly, for all the love that they've shown, all the family life that they share. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to me. That word kindness, it, I'm sorry to talk about the, the Hebrew more than I would normally, but that word, it's the word chesed in, the, in Hebrew, which is very hard to translate because it means so much. It does mean kindness. It's not a bad translation, but it means more than that. It means the undeserved, unstinting, overflowing kindness that God shows. It means the merciful kindness that we don't deserve. It means kindness that won't let you go. May God show you that kindness, she's saying, because you have shown that kindness to me. 
But she wants him to go back. She wants him to remarry because there's no obligation that keeps him there. She kisses them goodbye and they, they weep aloud. And they feel the bitterness of the parting. And they say, we, we will go back to you with you to your people. But Naomi says, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? There's nothing here for you. And then she begins to talk about a custom of that time and place, which is a little odd to us, uh, but I think makes sense in context. If, you know, life expectancy was lower. So if a husband died and his unmarried brother was still in the home, he would be expected to marry uh, his brother's widow so that they could carry on the family of the dead man and his legacy, but also to look after that widow to make sure that she wasn't left on her own. It sounds a little unpleasant to us, but you can see the logic. So Naomi says, look, I'm old. I'm not having any more kids. Uh, there's no way my family can do that for you. So why on earth would you come back with me? I've got no way to keep you in the family in the home. And, you know, even if I could have a kid, you know, even if I got pregnant tonight, you're going to wait all around for that whole time? Then she reveals the thing, reveal, says the thing which I think reveals her deepest feelings. No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. God's against me. God's done this. It's not just that things have gone wrong by chance. God is against me. And hearing that, they weep. You know, what else can they say to her? And Orpah kisses her goodbye and goes home. And who can blame her? You know, she's got no obligation to stay there. She, she goes off home to her life again. But Ruth clings on and won't let her go. And Naomi says, look, your sister-in-law's going back, won't you? She's going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. Now Naomi here, when she says that God's hand is against her, is of course quite typical of many of our reactions when things are hard and dark, isn't she? Um, she has faith enough to see that God is not out of control. He is still in charge. But with all the grief she's been through, she finds it hard to see any love or goodness or hope. And there's no hint that the passage blames her for that. Nor is there any hint that the passage blames her for voicing these things. You know, the Bible's often very honest about this kind of stuff. You know, she talks about just how hard things are and how she feels, and she is not blamed in any way. The, you know, we, the Bible commends a real honesty with God and one another. We are not to be, it's so easy to be British, isn't it? Just to say, you know, how are you? Fine. Um, a lot of us are not fine all the time. Naomi has the willingness to reveal that she is not fine. Not fine at all. And yet she is wrong, isn't she? God is not against her. And we'll see that through the rest of the, the story. She can never imagine a day when she will laugh again or smile again. But we know, if we've read to the end of the story, that she very much will. She won't have everything she's lost back. That, that's not how life works. But she will have joy and hope once again. God is not against her. God is bringing her home for good reasons and out of love and out of care. God is not against her. And when we feel like this, as so many of us will feel like this at times of great grief, 
we this is here to remind us yeah you may feel like this but that feeling is is wrong you not in the sense of immoral but in the sense of incorrect you may feel that god is against you but if you are his Romans remind us, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all all things? He has given his son for you and he will give you everything else good. Even when you don't feel it for a moment. And I think this passage is here partly to prepare us for those moments. Not that it will soften the pain necessarily, but just remind us that when we can see no light, it does not mean that the light is gone. Finally, we come to the wonderful response of Ruth. Let's look at this woman, this Moabite woman who, you know, we've said already, you know, you don't really expect the Moabite to be the hero of the story here. But she is, right from the beginning. She's going to be the hero of a book written by a people who were her enemies. Naomi has made the suggestion, go back, like your sister, to your people and your gods. And that seems to sting her into response into this beautiful speech. Don't urge me to leave you or keep turning back from you. Don't keep pushing me away. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. You remember a few moments ago that mention of God's kindness, his chesed love. That love that led God to commit to his people. Uh, Again and again in the Old Testament, he says, you know, you will be my people and I will be your God. Well, Ruth seems to be echoing some of those passages. She's heard about that love that God has for his people. And she says something very similar to Naomi. She's heard and perhaps she's even seen the unrelenting loving kindness of God, that love that never, ever lets you go. That love that says, you will be my people and I will be your God, always. She's heard about the way God has said that his love will never break or waver or fall. Whatever happens, whatever they do, he will still love them. And that's changed her. Ruth, who grew up very far from knowing this God, is now pouring out the same kind of love back on Naomi, making the same kind of commitment God makes to his people, to Naomi. It's costly, isn't it? She's giving up her people. She's giving up her gods. She's giving up her friends, her family. To turn to this God and to love Naomi today for her means giving up everything she is, everything that gives her identity. And she doesn't even say, I'll come with you till you die, bury you, and then I'm off back home. She says, I'm I'm, I'm sticking with you. I'm going to be buried where you're buried. This is her mother-in-law. You know, I I don't think it's unique to our culture that mothers and, that that wives and mothers-in-law don't always get on optimally. You know, the mother-in-law joke is sad when it's real, But it's a very ancient thing. You know, people fell out. This is the exact opposite. She she has no obligation in some sense to this woman. It wouldn't be wrong for her to look for a new marriage. 
and maybe to try provide for Naomi in that new marriage, but instead she comes with Naomi whatever it costs. And the way of loving Naomi for her is at the same time she is turning, completely committing to God. This is either a recommitment or perhaps a conversion to God. And it, it is costly. And, you know, we were talking briefly at the Bible study this week about just how costly conversion, becoming a Christian, can be even in this country. You know, losing the love of those you have who are dearest to you. That's a reality for many of us. But the love she offers is something else, isn't it? This passage is sometimes used in marriages, and that's definitely not wrong. You know, the... Christian love is this kind of love that will not let go. And the marriage and the love between a man and a woman should be shaped by this kind of love and attitude, just as every other kind should be. That's why the marriage vows are for the richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, for sickness and in health, all of that. I'm yours, whatever happens. That's what love between a man and a woman ought to be, but it's also what all our love, in some sense, ought to be. Ruth is showing us what a life that's tasted a little of the love of God, how it's transformed into a love, life that pours that love out again. Naomi doesn't have much in some ways to hope for, but she has a love from this this young lady, her, her daughter-in-law, that is real and deep and lasting, and it's going to lead to more good than she can possibly imagine. Now, when they get back to Bethlehem, everyone's amazed, shocked. They last saw Naomi years ago, full of hopes. Now she's back. Naomi is bitter. Don't call me Naomi. That means pleasant. It's like someone called Joy, who's full of bitterness and sadness and depression. Call me Mara, that means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. She still sees God and blames God almost. Maybe she thinks she deserves it, maybe she doesn't, but she sees only bitterness and darkness, and yet the next verse just has those little seeds that there is something deeper, something more wonderful at work. Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth Mobites, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. Season of new hope, of new provision, and it would be that for her. If you were going to go back to the time of the judges and turn things round, you would probably start with someone powerful or some great political machination. God starts with a couple of old widows on the way home, on a dusty road, who apparently have no real hope left. That's where God starts. And he turned the world upside down through that. This is where David comes from. This is where Jesus comes from, as we'll see at the end of the book. God turns not only their grief and their bitterness into joy by the end of this book, but into hope for us all. And as we go on the next few weeks, we'll see as that joy and that hope grow more and more from this dark beginning, as God takes that love that Ruth has given and turns it into something wonderful.
For us, it's a reminder just as we finish. Coming to Christ can be very costly, as it was for Ruth. But when it's there, when it's real, it leads to a transformation as we become more like God, more able to love in the way he loves, selflessly, absolutely, self-sacrificingly, with the kind of love which all of us have always wanted to be loved. We are able to offer it because he has first shown it to us. Let's pray. Jesus, Ruth does show such amazing love here in a situation of such darkness. We pray you will grow us and teach us to show the same love, the same willingness to give ourselves completely to serve and love others in a way that leads to their good. We remember, Lord, that that kindness she showed is only a picture of yours. Not just in the Old Testament, but also in the New. A picture of Jesus Christ who came and gave himself totally and completely. At great cost to himself. Cost greater than we can ever imagine. So that we could be with him and he with us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.